5,000 killers get away with murder. Since 1980, more than 250,000 cases have gone cold, where either a murder took place or a missing person was considered to have experienced serious bodily harm. Needless to say, there's a cold case crisis in America. But we believe families deserve answers. Victims deserve a voice. And no one should be a statistic. I'm Anna Eaglin. I'm Jim Brown. I'm Ashley Fujawa, and we're the co-founders of Uncovered where we're empowering the true crime community to turn their interests into advocacy by combining all publicly available information with an engaged membership to crowdsource gaps in the investigation of unsolved cases of the murdered or missing. By combining all information in a comprehensive database, visualizing the timeline of events, and overlaying each onto a map of locations, we're bringing case details together in a way that's never been done before. Our members are able to connect with fellow citizen detectives learn techniques on what to look for and how to help, and subscribe to the cases that interest them to be updated when new information is found. We count on active participation from our members to submit their research publicly or anonymously through a verification and substantiation process. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we can make a difference. Will you join us? For more information or to see how you can help, please visit uncovered.com. Warning, the following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, These stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. November 24th, 1971. Seemed like an ordinary day in Portland, Oregon. It was the day before Thanksgiving. So people were probably hitting the grocery store for a few last minute items. Or setting their dining room table in preparation for the biggest family meal of the year. Many were heading to the airport to catch flights home as the weather turned colder. At around 2 p.m., Northwest Orient Airlines employee Dennis Lenz was operating the ticket desk at Portland's airport when a man who looked to be in his mid-40s moseyed up to the counter. Dressed in a dark suit and tie, holding a briefcase, he asked Dennis for a one-way ticket to Seattle, Washington. The flight was set to depart in just under an hour, and the price of the ticket was just $20. As the man handed over his money, he asked Dennis a peculiar question. That's a 727, right? The man was referring to the model of the Boeing airplane that would take him from Portland to Seattle. Dennis confirmed the plane was a Boeing 727, gave the man his ticket, and went on about his day as usual. He wouldn't learn until later that he had just sold an airline ticket to the man who would pull off the only unsolved skyjacking in American history, the mysterious D.B. Cooper. 
The Boeing 727 was a compact commercial aircraft designed to cater to outlier airports with shorter runways. The first one rolled off production lines in November of 1962. And during its 22-year production run, ended up becoming one of the most successful commercial jets of all time. What makes the Boeing 727 important in this story is that it had a rear staircase that could be deployed just beneath the aircraft's tail. The Boeing 727 that would take Cooper from Portland to Seattle was Flight 305, and the short 30-minute hop was its last flight of the day. A crew of six-manned Flight 305, First Officer Bill Radizak, Co-Pilot Captain William Scott, Flight Engineer Harold Anderson were all in the cockpit, while Alice Hancock, Florence Schaffner, and Tina Mucklow served as flight attendants in the cabin. While the crew readied the flight for takeoff, an unassuming man boarded the plane. No one took particular notice of him. He looked like a businessman heading to his next destination. Clean cut, nicely dressed, and carrying a briefcase. He took his seat in the very last row of the plane, row 18, and ordered a bourbon and 7-up from the flight attendant. The seat he picked was right in front of the fold-down galley seats the flight attendants occupied during takeoff and landing. The name on his ticket read, Dan Cooper. Right as the plane took off, Cooper handed a note to the flight attendant, Florence Schaffner. Schaffner, who was 23 at the time, put the note in her jacket pocket without reading it. This was 1971 when flight attendants were marketed by airlines for their beauty and desirability. It was an era when a woman was expected to resign when she became pregnant. Schaffner was used to being hit on and didn't pay much attention when a lonely man slipped her a note with his phone number on it. But after a few moments, Cooper said, Miss, I think you better have a look at that note. I have a bomb. Schaffner unfolded the note and her breath hitched as she read it. Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase. I will use it if necessary. I want you to sit next to me. You are being hijacked. Schaffner showed the note to her co-flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, who immediately went and sat beside Cooper. She asked to see the bomb. He opened the case and she saw a tangled mess of red and blue wires attached to several long red cylinders she assumed were dynamite. Now that she was taking this seriously, Cooper had her write a new note for him. It was a list of ransom demands to be taken to the captains and transmitted to the authorities on the ground. Cooper wanted the following. $200,000 in negotiable currency, four parachutes including two main and two reserve chutes, and a fuel truck standing by at the Seattle-Tacoma airport. Tina Mucklow stayed in the seat besides Cooper and lit cigarettes for him because he refused to take his finger off the bomb trigger. Schaffner walked to the cockpit. Once inside, she dropped the note in Captain Scott's lap 
the situation was frightening for the pilots, and not just because they were being hijacked. By 1971, commercial airline hijackings happened almost weekly in the United States. Most of the time, the hijackings were political and natural. The perpetrators almost always wanted to be taken to Cuba. In an interview for the 2020 HBO documentary about D.B. Cooper, the first officer described these routine hijackings as almost a little hilarious, saying they would take a detour down to Cuba, the passengers would get off the plane and buy some cigars and booze, and then they would all fly home. No one had hijacked a plane for money before. Cooper upped the stakes. What would happen if they couldn't get the money in time? Would this guy blow up the plane and kill everyone on board? While trying to keep a steady head and banishing thoughts of being blown to bits in the middle of the sky, Radizak radioed air traffic control and informed them that Flight 305 was being hijacked and gave them Cooper's demands. Air traffic control called the FBI, and within minutes, every FBI in the vicinity of Seattle was en route to Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. Cooper was smart. He made the pilots circle above the airport for two and a half hours until the money and parachutes were on site. The passengers aboard Flight 305 never had a clue what was happening. Radizak announced to the cabin via intercom that there was a minor mechanical issue and the flight attendants moved everyone seated near Cooper to the seats in front of row 14, citing a weight distribution problem. No one protested. And passengers reported they didn't even realize they were involved in a hijacking until they were off the plane. Tina Mucklow kept her seat next to Cooper the entire time they were in the air. She chatted with him and tried to keep the situation calm. Perhaps the most famous quote remembered from their conversations was when Tina asked Cooper if he had a grudge with the airline. No, Cooper replied. I don't have a grudge with your airline. I just have a grudge. Most people regard Tina as a hero for her actions throughout this ordeal. She spent upwards of five hours with Cooper. She later told the press that Cooper was nothing but a gentleman that he never treated any of them unkindly or behaved in a nasty way, but he did want his money. Flight 305 landed in Seattle shortly after 5.30 p.m., and Cooper instructed the pilots to park far away from the airport terminals. He also had Tina direct the passengers to close their window shades while he hid in the airplane laboratory. This was done under the pretense of keeping the plane cool. But in reality, Cooper was worried about snipers positioned on the tarmac waiting to take him out. While the passengers waited obliviously on board, Cooper sent Tina out to the tarmac to collect the money. He had requested the 200000 to be brought to him in a duffel bag, but the FBI ensured the airline funds were bought to him in a handless money bag. It was a complication Cooper would prove to overcome. Once he had the money, Cooper allowed the flight attendants to evacuate the passengers. He also let Alice Hancock 
and Florence Schaffner go, but kept Tina as a hostage. Along with the pilot crew, again, Tina was sent outside to get the parachutes, and she had to make several trips to bring all four aboard. According to the flight crew, the only time things got tense with Cooper was during the refueling process. Because plane hijackings were so common, major airlines usually gave the assailant what they wanted rather than cause a major incident that may result in injury or death. Or worse, bad press for the airline. The FBI, however, was of a different opinion. They didn't think they should acquiesce to the hijackers' demands and were more willing to throw up roadblocks to a hijacker's success. In this case, putting the cash in a money bag without handles rather than a convenient-to-carry duffel bag and mucking up the refueling process. Realistically, it should have only taken the ground crew around 30 to 45 minutes to refuel that plane. But their refueling trucks kept having quote-unquote issues. As the minutes ticked by, Cooper communicated with the pilots via Tina and the intercom that there better not be any funny business going on. It took a call from the first officer and four total gas trucks to get the plane refueled. Finally, they were ready to depart. On the plane, it was just Cooper, Tina, the first officer, Captain Scott, and flight engineer Anderson. No one but Cooper knew what was about to happen. But given the parachutes, they suspected Cooper planned to skydive out of the airplane with the money. Cooper told the pilots he wanted to fly straight to Mexico City. But Radizak informed him they would need to stop and refuel. Reno was the agreed-upon location for the refuel, and the FBI immediately deployed agents on the scene there. In fact, the FBI was already chasing down leads on suspects named Cooper living in the area, which is how the hijacker got his famous initials, DB. They started with the name on the flight manifest, Dan Cooper. The FBI called local detectives in Portland who told them they knew of a local criminal named D.B. Cooper. During this exchange, a Portland reporter named Clyde Javin was within earshot and immediately wired the name back to his newspaper editors. It turned out cat burglar D.B. Cooper had nothing to do with the Flight 305 hijacking. But from that moment on, Dan Cooper became known as D.B. Cooper, and he's been known as such ever since. Cooper had a few specific demands for the actual flight. The pilots were to keep the plane speed below 200 miles per hour while setting the wing flaps at 15 degrees. They were to go no higher than 10,000 feet, keep the landing gear deployed at all times, and maintain a depressurized cabin. Cooper also wanted them to lower the passenger staircase at the back of the plane and take off with it deployed. But Captain Scott and Radizak refused to do this last demand on the advice of their airline's operations boss. 
After a short argument, Cooper relented. It wasn't worth the time. He needed to get out of Seattle fast. The plane took off at 7.36 p.m. as the rain began to fall. The temperature was in the low 20s. Cooper's speed of less than 200 miles per hour coupled with the 10,000 feet altitude kept them off the FBI radar. And now for a quick break. Hi, I'm Bernadette, the host from Murderific True Crime Podcast, coming to you from the state of Maine, USA. We are a bi-weekly podcast and discuss stories from Maine, New England, and all over the world. Our stories focus on domestic abuse, mass murder, familicides, cults, serial killers, kidnappings, and lesser-known cases. Murderific is easy to find on all podcast apps or go to murderific.com. Give Murderific a try. Remember, murder and horrific equals murderific. Now, back to the show. FBI agents scrambled fighter jets to pursue Flight 305, but they were too fast for the slow-moving plane, and the helicopter they deployed couldn't keep up. Their flight plan is still disputed to this day, but most agree they were somewhere along Vector 23, an eight-mile-long airspace through rural Washington, mostly traveled by private planes to avoid the surrounding mountain peaks. The landscape is a mixture of dense forest and wide-open farmland and most agree that Cooper seemed to know where he was going. At around 7.45 p.m., Cooper had Tina show him how the plane stairs worked. She showed him the lever he needed to pull to deploy the stairs, but asked him for a length of rope to tie herself to the plane so she wouldn't get sucked out. Cooper allegedly assured her that because they were only at 10,000 feet, and the cabin wasn't pressurized, there was no danger of her being drafted out of the airplane. She remained unconvinced, so he asked her to go back to the cockpit. The last she saw of D.B. Cooper, he was lashing the bank bag to his waist using strips he cut from one of the extra parachutes. She closed the first class cabin curtain behind her and entered the cockpit to await her fate with the rest of the flight crew. A few moments later, Cooper called up to the cockpit via the intercom at the back of the plane. He was having trouble getting the stairs deployed all the way down because the wind was blowing so hard. He told the pilots to reduce the plane speed down to 170 miles per hour, which they did. Then, according to Radizak, at 8.13 p.m., they felt the plane shudder. Cooper had jumped. The weather outside was horrible when Cooper leapt from the plane with nothing but a parachute, a bag of money, and his overcoat. According to retired investigative journalist Bruce Smith, despite official reports that claim it was just another dreary Pacific Northwest night, he interviewed locals who said the storms that night were some of the worst they had ever seen. 
including torrential downpour, strong winds, and freezing temperatures. Understandably, the search for Cooper had to wait until morning, giving the hijacker at least a 12-hour head start on his pursuers. The ensuing investigation was nicknamed Norjag. The physical search for Cooper in his suspected landing zone was left to local police and searchers as the FBI collected evidence from the plane and statements from witnesses. On the ground, people doubted Cooper could have survived a jump from 10,000 feet in those conditions. But investigators didn't find any sign of Cooper, the parachutes, or the money, leading them to believe he may have gotten away. For unknown reasons, the FBI called off the search the Monday after Thanksgiving in 1971, just four days after it began. The FBI collected Cooper's discarded clip-on tie and mother-of-pearl tie clip from the airplane. And in 2001, they were able to extract a small DNA sample from the evidence. Eight cigarette butts believed to be smoked by Cooper were also taken from the plane. Remember, this was 1971, when you could smoke anywhere, including 10,000 feet above the ground in a tube of recirculated air. They also took a few hair samples from Cooper's seat in the 18th row. Where those samples are today, nobody knows. Public opinion surrounding D.B. Cooper idled somewhere between fascination and hero worship. In Seattle especially, people seemed to be rooting for the master criminal who had beaten the system and fooled the man. By November 1971, Seattle and the surrounding areas were several months into an economic recession commonly referred to as the Boeing bust. The Boeing company was the main employer for residents in Seattle. When they lost a huge government contract to build an expensive commercial airline known as the supersonic transport, Boeing laid off half their workforce. The layoffs devastated the local economy and plunged the city into a recession. When news of D.B. Cooper hit the airwaves, people started comparing him to Robin Hood, the famous thief of Sherwood Forest who stole from the rich and gave to the poor. Locals looked upon Cooper with admiration for being able to outsmart the FBI. Meanwhile, officials were left chasing their tails in the search for D.B. Cooper. The next clue came eight and a half years later in 1980, when a young boy discovered $3,000 of rotten bills buried in a sandbar along the Columbia River. Known as Tina Bar, this discovery initially confirmed investigators' thoughts that Cooper had died during the jump from Flight 305 and had lost the money. However, when the FBI brought in a geologist named Dr. Leonard Palmer to analyze the sandbar, his analysis stirred up more questions than it answered. 
Dr. Palmer determined that the Columbia River had been dredged in 1974, meaning silt and debris had been manually removed from the bottom of the river, causing sand to be pushed up onto the banks. This created layers in the sand on Tina Bar that actually gave Palmer a fairly accurate timeline with which to work. The money had been found there three feet beneath the surface of the sandbar, above the dredge line, meaning it was put there no earlier than 1974. The money was so well preserved, it's highly unlikely that it had been exposed to the elements for very long. The bills would have disintegrated. Because of this, Palmer determined the money was probably deposited in the sand within a year of its discovery in 1980. Well, what does this tell us? Some wonder if Cooper buried the bills for safekeeping. Maybe he lived nearby and came back to bury some of his ransom money several years later. No one knows for sure. But new evidence discovered in 2020 added yet another layer to the mystery. Scientist Tom K. analyzed the remnants of the bills uncovered on Tina Bar and found what are called diatoms embedded in the paper. The species of star-shaped algae present on the notes only bloom in the spring. Therefore, we know the money didn't get wet until at least the spring of 1972. At the very least, this proved the money didn't hit the water on the night of November 24th, 1971. But unfortunately, it doesn't tell us much more than that. The FBI received thousands of tips over the years, claiming this person or that person was D.B. Cooper. The case has never been officially solved, though a number of suspects have emerged over the years. On April 7, 1972, five months after the D.B. Cooper hijacking, a man in a dark business suit boarded United Airlines Flight 855 as it stopped for a layover in Denver, Colorado. 20 minutes after takeoff, a fellow passenger noticed the man was holding a hand grenade and immediately told a flight attendant. An off-duty airline pilot, who just happened to be on the flight, was enlisted to casually walk around to see what was going on. But as he got closer to the person with the grenade, the perpetrator pulled a gun, handed him a note, and instructed him to take it to the cabin. It was a list of ransom demands. The man wanted $500,000 in cash and four parachutes, along with fuel trucks standing by. The note had strict instructions about how many people could be near the plane at one time. Once the flight landed in San Francisco, his demands were met by United Airlines. He let the passengers and flight attendant go, and then flight 855 took off again. The man jumped from the rear staircase of the plane with the money and the parachutes somewhere over Salt Lake City, Utah. No one on board was hurt. When news of the hijacking broke and a composite drawing of the suspect was circulated, 
A man notified the FBI about a friend who had been talking about hijacking a plane. They picked up Richard Floyd McCoy, aged 29, a Utah Air National Guardsman, a Vietnam veteran, and a skilled skydiver. Police were able to match handwriting samples from McCoy to the notes left aboard the plane. They also matched his fingerprints to one lifted from an in-flight magazine. The most damning evidence of all was the discovery of $500,000 in cash in his home attic. Most law enforcement agents pegged McCoy as the best suspect for the D.B. Cooper hijacking. Not only were their methods of hijacking the same, McCoy bore a striking resemblance to the Cooper composite sketch. Authorities believe McCoy lost the money when he jumped from Flight 305 back in November 1971, which is why he had to hijack Flight 855 five months later. McCoy never talked about the Cooper hijacking. Police found evidence he was in Las Vegas on Thanksgiving night, 1971, and it's where they believe he laundered the few thousand dollars he did manage to hang on to from the Cooper hijacking. Others, like journalist Bruce Smith, question this timeline. To him, the fact that he was in Las Vegas Thanksgiving night is hard evidence that McCoy wasn't D.B. Cooper. Unfortunately, no one will ever know. McCoy escaped from prison in 1974 and was subsequently killed in a shootout with FBI agents. Another most recent suspect in the Cooper case is a man named Lynn Doyle Cooper. Marla Cooper, his niece, went to the FBI in 2011, claiming her uncle was the infamous D.B. Cooper. She was later interviewed for the 2020 HBO documentary about the Cooper mystery. As a kid, she remembered around Thanksgiving 1971. Her uncles were discussing something in hushed voices as they were all taking a hike in the woods near her house in Sisters, Oregon. She asked them what they were talking about and they said they were going hunting the following morning. She asked them if they were going turkey hunting for Thanksgiving, and they laughed and told her yes, they were going for a big fat turkey. The following day, she said, she eagerly awaited for them to show up. When she saw their car coming down the street, she ran to the window and saw her uncle LD injured and bleeding in the back seat. She told ABC News, quote, My uncle LD was wearing a white t-shirt, and he was bloody and a bruised mess, and I was horrified. I began to cry. My other uncle, who was with LD, said, Marla, just shut up and go get your dad. Her father came out and told her to go inside, but she didn't and she recalled one of them saying, we did it. Our money problems are over. We hijacked that plane. She only saw her uncle LD once more at Christmas the following year. 
After that, she never heard anything else about him. And her memories of that strange Thanksgiving morning faded away. And now, for a quick break. Hey there, movie lovers. This is Dylan. Frank. And Erica. And and this this is is our podcast. podcast. Our weekly movie reviews cover everything we think. From all-time classics like Pulp Fiction and Friday the 13th to more modern movies like A Star is Born and The Hangover. And our weekly beverage reviews cover everything you want to drink, from wine and beer to creative cocktails. So get your glass ready and join us weekly wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. Our show is launching on May 4th. Subscribe today so you don't miss a thing. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Drunken Drive-In Podcast and on Twitter at Drunk Drive-In Pod. So remember, movie lovers, drive safe, drink responsibly, and and keep keep watching movies. Now, back to the show. In the 1990s, she asked her father, whatever happened to Uncle LD? He told her he thought LD was alive, but still hiding from CIA and FBI. She asked him why would he be hiding from the FBI? And her father reportedly said, don't you remember? He hijacked that airplane. Years later, Marla's mother told her she always thought LD was D.B. Cooper. And that was when the memories came flooding back. Marla went to the FBI with an old guitar strap her uncle had made, hoping it might provide fingerprints or DNA they could use to confirm her suspicion. Unfortunately, no conclusive identification had been made. On his deathbed in 1995, Dwayne Weber confessed to his wife, Joe, that he was Dan Cooper. After his death, she discovered numerous fake IDs and other evidence that he was, in fact, a conman, including prison records from when he went by another name. Over the years, she has compiled heaps of evidence that she believes points to the fact that he was telling the truth about hijacking Flight 305 back in 1971. One compelling piece of evidence was a tax return from 1971 that showed he had only made $1,000, but bought two brand new cars right after Thanksgiving. Where did that money come from? She thinks he bought those cars with the hijack money but no clear evidence has ever emerged confirming Dwayne Weber as D.B. Cooper. After 45 years and thousands of leads, the FBI officially closed the Norjack case on July 8, 2016. They include the following in their official statement. The mystery surrounding the hijacking of a Northwest Orient Airlines flight in November 1971 by a still unknown individual resulted in significant international attention and a decades-long manhunt. Although the FBI appreciated the immense number of tips provided by members of the public, none to date have resulted in a definitive identification of the hijacker. The tips have conveyed plausible theories descriptive information about individuals potentially matching the hijacker, and the 
anecdotes to include accounts of sudden, unexplained wealth. In order to solve a case, the FBI must prove culpability beyond a reasonable doubt. And unfortunately, none of the well-meaning tips or applications of new investigative technology have yielded the necessary proof. Every time the FBI assesses additional tips for the Norjack case, investigative resources and manpowers are diverted from programs that more urgently need attention. We will probably never know the true identity of D.B. Cooper. There simply isn't enough evidence, and too much time has passed. But that doesn't stop us from speculating. Who do you think was responsible for the hijacking of Flight 305? If you have a theory, I'd love to hear from you. Your hypothesis might just end up on next week's Aftermath episode, where I will discuss this case with a special guest. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.